afternoon. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles tough topics. Today, I think the topic is not as tough as it is just downright interesting. We've talked about domestic violence for many years, many decades now we've been talking about domestic violence. Sometimes in those conversations we have had uh, talks and done research about the health care response to domestic violence. And I know years ago I had a conversation with my family doctor and I said, how come you don't have any information? How come you never ask me about domestic violence when we're doing my annual physical? And her response was, gee, I would like to, but the problem is, is that if I ask you and you say you have that problem, then I have to do something about it and I don't know what to do. And I've often recalled that, and that that comment actually came back to me a few weeks ago when I was reading a study by Dr. Kevin Hamburger and others called The Effects of a Systems Change Model to Respond to Patients Experiencing Partner Violence in Primary Care Medical Settings, which is basically like what do we do about the healthcare people who are encountering people who are experiencing domestic violence. And I have with me uh, the guy who knows what study found, and that's Dr. Kevin Hamburger. Welcome, Dr. Hamburger. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Okay. And because it's easier for me to say, Kevin, I'm going to call you Kevin because you said that was okay. So Perfectly you fine. Me, first, of all, first of all, tell me a little bit about your background. What led you, what is your specialty, and what led you to doing the research on IPV and health care systems? Okay. Um, so I'm a clinical psychologist, and uh, I began my career in working in a family medicine residency training program in 1982 uh, with the Medical College of Wisconsin. And I've, I've actually been with the Medical College and with this department um, ever all since that time. So um, about 36 years worth of experience. Um, at the beginning of my career, I, I have to be honest that intimate partner violence was just not on my radar screen. Uh, I had zero training in it as a graduate student or as, even as an intern. Uh, but when I got into uh, my professional setting, one of the first patients I ever saw was a battered woman who was suicidal. And I, I was, of course, as a trained clinician, more concerned with her suicidal behavior uh, than w with her domestic violence issues. Again, since I wasn't trained and I, I just had no uh, concept of what that was all about. Uh, in the meantime, I was invited, because of my interest in doing anger management work, I was invited to do a guest lecture in uh, a batterer treatment program on anger. And I enjoyed that experience so much that when I went back, it was in a different community, when I went back to my community, uh, I decided I needed to learn more about domestic violence and how we could work with perpetrators. So I contacted the local shelter at the time and uh, talked, introduced myself, talked about my interests and my willingness to learn from them everything they could teach me about domestic violence. And that began um, a 14-year relationship with that particular shelter that was extremely rewarding and educational for me. So I learned not only from the advocates, but I learned from the women themselves who used the shelter, what domestic violence was all about. Um, I also started up a, a program of treatment for men who batter, and I continued to learn from them as well 
uh, about domestic violence. And this and this batter intervention program was situated in the medical clinic. So my my primary job was to train family practice residents about uh, how to deal with patients, how to identify any kind of psychosocial problem and, and work with patients on it or make appropriate referrals. And I oftentimes used my domestic violence program, battery intervention program, as a vehicle for that training. And so then I started, you know, kind of almost by accident training residents about domestic violence. And that led to doing lectures to residents and also to medical students. And one of the interesting things I found back in the old days was that if I was going to go somewhere and do a lecture, I would almost invariably uh, encounter a lot of resistance. And a big part of the resistance was, you know, hey, we are here to learn medicine and how to treat patients. We're not here to become social workers with a stethoscope and to deal with domestic violence, which is a social issue, not a medical issue. Those are the kinds of arguments that I often received. And, and once in a while, someone would come up and say, you know, Dr. Hamburger, I've been in practice for 35 years as a family doctor, and I have to tell you, I have never had a patient who told me that they were in a violent relationship. So is this a tempest in a teapot? I mean, are you, you know, is this, or is this a real thing? How do, you know, how prevalent is this problem? And that, that uh, in and of itself got me started with, um, in, in my journey in healthcare about uh, trying to understand a, um, how does domestic violence present itself in healthcare settings? How prevalent is it? And then what can we do about it? And how can we train physicians and nurses to address the issue? So if, if you'd like me to continue the story, I can, you know, then that led to a well, prevalence. <laughs> Go ahead. To that and later, but what occurs to me in, in the conversation that you have is it is so typical because um, early on when we were trying to educate physicians and you know as being a point of contact for victims of domestic violence, there was huge discussion and huge amounts of research going and uh, anecdotal research going into how should healthcare practitioners find out this information because the likelihood that a woman would be experiencing domestic violence or intimate partner violence and just march in and announce it to the medical professional pretty ludicrous not going to happen too threatening too too many things so we went through a, a period where we tried to teach okay how do you find out how do you ask the question what do you do once you ask the question um, and when you're talking about this situation that you had where the doctor came to you and said well nobody's ever come to me and said they were experiencing this Wow, how typical of that era, really. Um, right, and, it, so and I think you're right. It, it was very typical of the era because this was still, we're talking about the 80s now. Um, and yeah. even, though, even though I've been working on this issue for a long, long time, in, in terms of medicine, um, you can find a, a smattering of studies that go back into the late 70s, maybe even the mid-70s, about domestic violence in healthcare settings. But uh, those studies are actually fairly rare. I mean, there weren't a lot. That was there was not a lot of research going on in those days, uh, looking at uh, domestic violence as a healthcare issue. Right. 
Right. And we have evolved. I mean, we've been working on this issue for decades, and, and, you know, things have evolved, and things do change. Our attitudes change, our knowledge changes, and I tend to be pretty um, forgiving of people who were operating under the systems and under the information that we had 20, 30 years ago, because that's what we had. Um, But it is different today. Now we know different things. So what isn't the problem solved? Um, why did we need? Why do we still need to look at healthcare and healthcare systems, and their response to domestic violence? Well, that's a really good question, and I don't know if any of us have fully answered that yet. But what I will say is this, in terms of the evolution of the field, it really has uh, developed greatly. In fact, starting in 19... I'll I'll, I'll give it a a little more of a history perspective. In 1992, the American Medical Association um, had, had every one of its archival journals devote a special issue to, the, uh, to the, the concept or the issue of intimate partner violence as a healthcare issue. And I think there was a, a huge buildup of, of pressure behind that because an awful lot of, uh, every one of those issues was filled with lots of interesting articles, which tells me a lot of people were in the process of doing research in that area. Um, around that same time, uh, the Surgeon General declared that that um, intimate partner violence is a public health problem and um, and and called for screening uh, for domestic violence in healthcare settings so it and from that point on um, it has been a, a long and arduous journey um, we still aren't where we want to be yet but a lot of progress has been made so I'm I'm not entirely pessimistic. Um, I, I've come to the conclusion that institutions do not change easily, and it requires a constant pressure from scholars, researchers, and act, advocates alike to kind of keep pressing and, and keep the pr- pressure on um, to continue to evolve and grow in uh, how we address domestic violence as a health issue. Okay. So that being said, I go back to the question of why was there a need for your research, your study? What made you, um, you know, what, what, uh, how, how did you look at the problem? How did you identify a problem that you wanted to find out more about? Okay. So in terms of the particular study you're talking about with healthcare can change from within, um, we, uh, my group and I, Bruce Ambuel, Mary Beth Phelan, um, Marlene Meltzer-Lang, uh, Claire Guzzi, uh, we, we were doing a lot of work in uh, looking at health aspects of intimate partner violence. So, you know, we had done some prevalence studies, we had done some trainings, and we have did research on, how, on training healthcare professionals uh, to learn about uh, domestic violence and how to ask about it and respond to it, to develop comfort with the issue and so on. But one of the things that we noticed is that when you look at the literature on teaching healthcare professionals to screen and respond to domestic violence, that the, the educational interventions often have a fairly powerful effect on the learners. That is, doctors, nurses, medical students, and residents can, can definitely learn about domestic violence, and they begin to see it as an important uh, uh, area that 
healthcare needs to be involved in, but when they go into their work settings, they never ask about it. And uh, similarly, organizations like uh, JACO or the American Medical Association or other uh, learned uh, medical societies that, that say, hey, everybody needs to ask about domestic violence, uh, and these sound very credible, these exhortations, uh, and yet nobody, or uh, they're not doing it in mass. And so we began to wonder, well, why is that? You know, why is it when uh, an accreditation body says you need to be asking all women about domestic violence, why aren't hospital systems or clinic systems doing it? And the, the, the answer that we came up with is that all of these kinds of rules or regulations or exhortations were coming from the outside and oftentimes without any particular appreciation of you know the unique dynamics of a particular health system uh, what the issues are that providers had to deal with within that system in order to do their job and so on and so we endeavored to look at how can we actually change the system itself to make screening and uh, brief interventions for intimate partner violence uh, something as part of part and parcel of their everyday work so uh, beyond so it goes beyond training in other words um, to looking at how do we change systems and so we developed an intervention that was designed to do just that Okay. Well, first of all, I want to before you get into that, and I want to hear about mm-hmm. that. I want to just once um, once again for our listeners hit that whole idea of prevalence. Why do we need to do this? Uh, because it is prevalent. Um, and so our research, our early research, um, showed that in a family practice setting. Even if you only ask about, and we know that intimate partner violence is much broader than physical violence, consists of a lot of other factors, but we only looked even at this study at physical violence in relationships, and we found that that, um, one in four women reported being physically assaulted by their partner, their intimate partner, within the past year. And almost 40% reported a lifetime prevalence of intimate partner violence and those those numbers have been uh, that that's been replicated not only in other family medicine and general internal medicine primary care clinics but um, actually across and within just about every medical specialty that that you can name Um, so again as I mentioned in the early 90s there was an explosion of research and a lot of it started with prevalence studies and, and those numbers are shocking um, and they shocked people then, and they still shock people now. And, and we oftentimes would say in a lot of our lectures and discussions and seminars that we did, imagine some kind of actual, you know, some kind of physical medical condition having a prevalence of 25%. Imagine if 25% of patients had some kind of a heart disease. Now, we know that that um, that the whole health community would marshal major resources to you know hurry up and address that, and so you know we you know this these prevalence numbers gave us some some leverage to say you know this is a healthcare issue too because it results in depression anxiety 
alcohol abuse. It results in low birth weight babies, premature baby births, um, and it can result in homicide as as well as chronic just chronic illness. And so um, it, the people began to listen more then when we you know, when they started to look at those prevalence numbers. Yeah, I often think of that with so many things in our in our culture. We make a big deal out of so many things, which, you know, should be a big deal. But when you mm-hmm. look at the actual numbers, you know, I mean, there are so many other things that we don't, you know, I mean, people get all upset about and, and worry about the risks of flying on an airplane, and yet the risks of getting hurt in your car are so much greater, and we do that without even thinking. Um, right. And it's the same thing with this kind of thing, I think. Um, yes. If you see the actual numbers, it has to change your attitude, I would think. It yes, has it, to be an awakening experience. Absolutely, and it really equipped us as um, as teachers as well, uh, so that when you know, in the again in the old days when we would lecture to medical students or residents about this, or go to a continuing medical education program for physi- practicing physicians, you know, we were often appealing to you know their better angels, you know, their better selves of, you know, that this is a moral imperative, but we didn't have any data. And and that's where we end up oftentimes in these, you know, debates about, well, is this really a medical concern? But when we started to be able to show data, um, attitudes really did change. I mean, people really did start to take notice. And, um, and then it gets back to some of what you said at the very beginning in the conversation you had with your family doctor uh, that, you know, physicians would often say, well, okay, I know I should ask, but what will I do afterwards? And, I, I, and, and from a physician perspective, ethically, um, they should not open up an issue with a patient unless they can offer something. And so um, that, that then resulted in, you know, working on how do we train physicians not only to ask, but how to respond um, to patients who acknowledge that they have violence going on in their relationships. Right. And then there is a very great skill and, and science behind how do you ask. Because if you just came up to a woman and said, are you being abused? No. You know, that's no. A, Yes, that's, that's, that's very accurate. No. Um, um, yeah. They, very rarely would you find a woman who would actually say, yes, yes, uh, I yeah. am, and thank you for asking. Um, and so right. As a matter as a ma- yeah, and as a matter of fact, I mean, we we specifically teach people to to avoid using words like abuse or violence um, because those kinds of or be or are you a victim those kinds of things because uh, we we label those terms as red flag terms. That is that the, the from the patient's perspective, it sends up a red flag that. A, something is wrong with them, or B, there's something about them that the doctor or the nurse uh, you know, has figured out that something is going on and it and sends up defensiveness because they're not at that point necessarily ready to address the issue. Um, they, so we train doctors and nurses to <clears throat> ask behavioral questions. So things like, are you in a relationship with someone, with someone where um, they are hitting you or they are using physical aggression against you, pushing you, shoving you, um, that kind of thing. So, so starting kind of small like that and, and then building up to more intense forms of aggression. So we've established that, that there's a prevalence for doctors, mm-hmm. healthcare systems, becoming uh, more aware and doing something about 
screening uh, for domestic violence. But when you and I talked before, you said an interesting thing happened. Over all these years of training the actual providers, they learned a lot, but what did it do? How did that translate into their work with patients? Well, that's where, again, the, the, the systems change component comes into place. So simply training um, and sending somebody back to their clinic setting or their hospital setting is in all likelihood not going to result in um, sudden, immediate, and sustained increases in um, screening and doing brief clinic-based or you know, hospital-based interventions with patients who say yes. Um, so that's where we needed, we felt we needed to actually change the system itself. And so that involved a number of things. Uh, first, it involved uh, training people within the system to be, to be able to function at the level of a domestic violence advocate. So in our, within our model, for example, in a clinic setting such as the kind of family practice clinic I work in, um, in fact, in this clinic that I work in now, uh, we have trained four people to function as uh, domestic violence advocates within the clinic so that when a physician asks a patient or learns from a patient that they're experiencing domestic violence, the physician can uh, make an, um, an immediate warm referral to that in-house advocate who can spend the time with, with the patient to uh, provide um, emotional support, can begin to provide practical support by giving them information about community resources and so on. So that, that we think that, that um, ha having that kind of person and expertise available within the clinic um, is absolutely necessary. Now, some clinic systems may do this by have, developing an arrangement with a local domestic violence advocacy program and having a person either on call to be able to come to the clinic or maybe even embedded within the clinic itself. Uh, we found that that type of system oftentimes is limited by funding available to support the position, whereas by training somebody within the health system itself to be that advocate, uh, that's very consistent with what happens in health systems all the time, and that is that people have multiple roles and responsibilities within the system. So somebody who's functioning as a nurse whose primary job is to work with physicians to to see patients can also be trained to be in charge of, let's say, the medication room so that they keep the inventory and so on. So, so likewise, we can train a person in the clinic to function as an advocate so that when it, their help is needed, they, are, they can be available. So that, that's what we saw as, as really key, a key linchpin feature of this. But we also looked beyond just having a single person or two or three people available, and we trained, we, we, we did what we called saturation training, and that is that we trained absolutely everybody in the clinic uh, about domestic violence, about the health effects of it, about the dynamics of it, what domestic violence is, and so on. And what that, what that oftentimes resulted in, in our experience, was that people who worked in different units and held different job responsibilities, then also developed a sense of, of ownership of the issue. So, for example, um, I, we, I, I recall a scenario where um, a, a patient 
uh, was checking in for to see a doctor at at the clinic, and her spouse was doing all the talking with her, and he was acting a little bit belligerently with the uh, reception staff. So one of the reception uh, staff who noticed this got on the phone and made a kind of a surreptitious call to the nurse that was going to be calling that doc that patient in to 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 describe what she was observing so that nurse then was able to take steps to separate the man and the woman um, and to tell the doctor what was going on so that the doctor could take immediate action to, to talk to the patient about domestic violence. That would have never happened if we wouldn't have trained everybody in the clinic. Um, and, and, and for example, uh, receptionists tell us all the time, yeah, we see a lot of that stuff. We see people pushing and shoving when they're coming in the door. We see people acting intimidatingly toward their partner while they're sitting in the waiting room, but we don't know what to do about it. So saturation training as part of a systems intervention um, gave them the um, knowledge, but also the sense of empowerment of I can tell somebody this and I know who I'm going to call and I know what I'm going to say. So saturation training is another part. Policies and procedures okay, as well. I can interrupt oh, go ahead. for a moment here. Yeah. Because the mm -hmm. question that's coming to my mind is what you're describing is not only the training of the people and saturation training, as you call it, so that everybody's aware, but it sounds like you also are uh, coming up with the systems where they know what to do with that information. Is that yes. what was missing before? Um. Largely, yeah, absolutely. Um, that and 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 a lot of staff who weren't necessarily involved with patient care uh, would tell us that. Is again, like I, as I said, receptionists would tell us, yeah, we see that all the time, but we don't know what to do about it, so we don't do anything with it. So as a result of training, they actually in some of the clinics we worked in, receptionists actually developed their own kind of mini uh, policies and procedures about, hey, if we see this, we're calling the nurse, for example. I'm going to call the nurse, and then the nurse can handle it. Well, the nurse has also been trained, so the nurse knows about what they're talking about. And so now the nurse says, oh, this is serious. I need to deal with that. I'm going to make sure that the, you know, the man and the woman, they could be husband and wife, they may not be, um, are, are roomed separately, whereas n not unusual in a family medicine clinic, couples might be put in the same room together um, because that's just often the way it's been done. So separating them and then talking to the doctor about it. Well, the doctor's also been trained and knows how to ask about and knows how to um, respond. So now the doctor's going to make that an, a high agenda item on the visit to check with the patient on, on whether this is happening in their life. What And this procedure is in place how many how many areas well that's a good question i mean we we trained in our um in our system we trained five clinics and um, and one emergency department um you know so i don't know how how um typical this is in other settings um what i can say though just to kind of jump fast forward to the present age that um, there's a there's a, a kind of a new movement out um, in healthcare called trauma informed care, and trauma informed care is is much like uh, the healthcare can change from within model that we developed. Insofar as it it's it sort of is a mandate to a clinic setting 
to recognize that many of our patients coming in for services may be experiencing trauma, and we need to adjust our practices accordingly, including <clears throat> proactively screening for trauma and doing warm referrals for patients to get them connected to services either within the clinic or system or within the community uh, to address the issues that they have. And so um, I, I, I know that there are more, and I can't give you any specific number, but I know that there are more uh, and more healthcare systems that are beginning to adopt trauma-informed care types of approaches, and intimate partner violence is, is certainly a part of that. Well, what you're saying really uh, encourages me, but I do have the question of, you know, having been a recipient of health care today, it seems uh-huh. like they do really well with their checklists, but if you have anything that doesn't fit on the checklist, they don't have the time. They don't have the time. They don't know what to do with you. They basically just want you to go away so that they can get on with their work. And I'm not saying that to disparage health care workers. I think they work under a great deal of stress right now. Realistically, mm -hmm. is you know how likely is the average clinic healthcare system? How likely are they to be able to adopt something like this? Wow, that's a really good question. Let me first speak to the the the. You've kind of have two questions in there, and one is is this sustainable, and the other one is how likely are they to um, uh, our health systems likely to adopt it? In terms of sustainability, uh, one of the things that we found was we followed clinics for um, up to three years after the uh, program was implemented, and 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 long after. Um, the intervention actually ended, and we found that that there they, that every one of these clinic settings that adopted healthcare can change from within showed a an increase a continued increase in number of patients screened uh, over time. Um, uh, up to three years, as I mentioned. And, and so we were pretty blown away by that, actually, because oftentimes at, once an intervention ends, once a grant goes away, um, you know, the, the, the whole thing falls apart uh, because there's not money to sustain it. So we we came were of the opinion that what we were able to do because we fostered actual system change is that we were able to create something that was sustainable over time. Um, now, uh, you know, would that still be going 10 years after? I don't know um, because, you know, leadership changes, health systems change. We live in a very, very dynamic world today in the area of healthcare, where, you know, one health system organization is buying up another and, and, and so things change rapidly in that kind of a world. And so what you know, we might have thought was something that was safely in place uh, may, you know, may be out the window, um, you know, under a new, um, you know, set of, of rules and, and organizational, um, you know, sort of mandates and those kinds of things. And so, um, so it's, an, you know, one of the things that I have found in, in the 35 years that I've been doing domestic violence work, and I've worked as a, a clinician, as I mentioned earlier, doing batterer intervention. I do a lot of psychotherapy with abuse survivors. Um, I work in, uh, on the policy level with the Wisconsin Governor's Council on Domestic Abuse, where we, you know, monitor legislation and make recommendations about legislation and so on and policy. And what I can tell you is that uh, you can never rest. 
um, with with this issue. That but about the time you think you have something in place, um, it. it something is coming along that threatens it. Um, and so you're always having to kind of, you know, it, it's like Sisyphus constantly pushing that rock up to the top of the mountain. By the time he gets to the top of the mountain, it rolls back down, and you've got to push it back up to the top again. That's kind of the metaphor that I have used internally just to understand, you know, that the ongoing need for monitoring and advocating within the field. So when you talk about What's the likelihood of clinics uh, or systems adopting this? So I would say that it depends. It's going to depend on things like um, uh, the the uh, administration's uh, sense of is this is this uh, uh, is there a cost benefit um, ratio here that favors doing it? What's the bottom line? Uh, when we were, for example, implementing healthcare can change from within, and we were talking about training nurses or other staff people to function as advocates to where they could actually leave their primary assignment for a period of time to go see a patient. The, a very predictable question was two things. One, how much is this going to cost? And, be, and two, a related question, how much time is it going to take my employee away from their, you, you know, their regular uh, job and so job assignment? And so uh, we actually um, assessed that, and we were able to demonstrate at the end of the project, for example, that in outpatient clinics, um, it was like four hours a month that that a that advocates were actually doing some kind of advocacy related work um, that was other than their primary assignment um, and in the emergency setting which is a very large um, level one trauma center um, advocates were putting in about seven hours a month um, in doing advocacy work so that could be one that that there could be good news and bad news with that one the good news is it's not very costly and and so we now have that kind of data that we can present to clinic management or hospital management to say this is really a very important yet cost-effective um, uh, you know thing that we can do on the other hand it may also mean that there still wasn't a lot of screening going on and there wasn't a huge need for them to do this work. But I don't think that's the case because, again, we had the data that showed that screening rates were continued, continuing to rise. I think what also happens is when a, a person is, a patient is identified as being in an abusive relationship, they may be you know, offered the services of an advocate, but they may refuse it for various reasons. They may say, um, and and we know this from from our data. They may say, um, well, you know, I'm already connected with the with the local advocacy program, so I don't need to have that you know contact today. But thank you very much. Um, and so, um, or you know, that's something that's from my past, and I'm dealing with it. I have a therapist, and I don't need to talk to that person now. So there there can be you know. Um, many more people who are identified than who may be necessarily utilizing those kind of in-clinic services. Yeah. One of the things, you know, you were talking about proving that it was cost-effective and, and that there was a uh, cost-benefits uh, ratio here, is in your study you also talked about um, women who were who had received this kind of intervention, and I hope I'm paraphrasing this correctly, had fewer doctor visits. They rece received more prescriptions, though. Um, how, what was that all about? 
Um, we're not sure. Uh, we were, you know, we think that the fewer doctor visits uh, may be related to, you know, you know, the sense of okay, the doctor knows what's going on with me, and I, and and I have more a more sense of a support um, from my healthcare provider over, you know, around this issue, um, and so. Um, and because they also show decreases in symptoms of injury as well, um, meaning that they, you know, maybe f- didn't feel as ill as much of the time, and therefore didn't feel a need to go into the doctor. Now, as far as the increase in prescriptions, we were a little surprised by that, and and frankly, um, I have to say that I'm not sure what that means. Okay. Did you, were you able to determine what kind of prescriptions? No, because the numbers were too small for us to do that. We tried to look at that, but the numbers are just too small. Yeah, because that would be interesting data, wouldn't it? To, to, yeah, yeah, you know, definitely. You know, what 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 are we prescribing, and is it how is it different if we're prescribing more of it? So that yeah. would be, I think, a, a wonderful. Are you planning a follow-up study? <laughs> <laughs> Not at this time, but but that's a but but we but we definitely think that that's an area that that you know should be looked at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the questions that I had in looking at your your study is, did you mm-hmm. encounter any resistance other than the, the the money guys? Did you encounter resistance? Um, were you uh, did you receive any surprises, um, perhaps negative surprises, as you were uh, trying to train uh, people in, within the system? Um, very little, actually. I mean, I would. I ask that, the reason I ask mm-hmm. that is not necessarily the harbor, you know, or to, to hone in on the negative, but to see what it is that perhaps we still need to work on, and, and as far yeah. as you know, so. Yeah, I, no, I was going to say that I, I think. Uh, we were fortunate in terms of the again the time in history that we chose to do this study. I think the time was right. Again, going back to what I had said earlier, you know, in, in, back in the 80s, uh, any discussion about how healthcare providers should get involved in domestic violence often resulted in um, some kind of a debate or some kind of, you know, very strong stance of, you know, I didn't become a doctor or I didn't become a nurse to deal with social issues. I came became a nurse to deal with real medicine and health issues. But by the time we did this study, um, I think the argument had been successfully made that intimate partner violence yes, it had, it had, it definitely has a, a huge social component to it. But it also is a health issue, and that it's time for clinics and healthcare providers to step up and take ownership of it as the health issue that it is. And there was very little um, uh, argument about that at, by you know in those years at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that. But uh, yeah, when we talked before uh, off offline, you were mm-hmm. saying that one of the things that you discovered was that you could have trainings, which is what we've been doing for decades, training these yep. healthcare professionals, mm-hmm. and that that was really effective in helping the healthcare professional learn, but yep. that it didn't yep. translate into right. becoming a part of operating procedure. Right, right. Do you think that there is some, uh, you know, you mentioned saturation training, but do you mm-hmm. think that there is some other key to bridging that gap? Well, I think policies and procedures is another. 
um, you know, kind of the lifeblood of any health system is having protocols, policies, and procedures for how to deal with different things. And so when I, we believe that when a health system establishes policies and procedures on how to deal with how, you know, how often should we screen and what should the screening look like and, and in these days placing the screener right on the EMR um, so that the physician or the nurse, whoever's responsible for the screening, is reminded right then and there to do the screening uh, when it's appropriate to do so and so on. Uh, that that becomes a very strong systemic statement as well, uh, and becomes you know in a sense it's part of the healthcare culture now uh, that this is an important thing. So it goes again beyond this beyond the you know niceties of training and and so on. It says no, this is this is actually what we do. Okay, all right, and it's uh, and again playing devil's advocate here. It seems to me that mm-hmm. when I go to the doctor, there's a uh, I, I have a hangnail, right? And I go to the mm-hmm. doctor because I, I can't take care of it or it got infected or whatever. And, oh, my gosh, I've got to go through all of the questions on stuff that never has changed, hasn't changed, and, you know, is not going to change for me. And I get asked about my medications, even though it's on the script, you know, on their screen. Mm-hmm. I get asked. Mm-hmm. And as as a, um, a consumer of health care, I think, oh, for heaven's sake, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> Do you- <laughs> <laughs> Again, you're asking me these questions, you know. Um, sure. Am I just turning into an old crank, or is this one more thing that uh, is going to burden that interaction? Is you mean is is asking about domestic violence one more thing that will burden the interaction? Well, I, I guess simplified, that is what I'm asking, which sounds kind of foolish at this point. But yeah, I, yes. Is this going to burden or bog down the system? You mentioned some uh, uh, clinics were able to make uh, connections. They don't have a person available to deal with this, but they made connections with the local shelter mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can see this being a bogged down system. Okay. Is that likely to happen, or is that is that? Just- well, it's certainly that that's actually a concern that that many healthcare providers have. Um, that you know, if I ask about this. Um, is it going to, um, especially if the patient says yes, is this going to, um, in a sense, kind of create a logjam, you know, that's going to make the rest of my day go very, very slow um, and get me out of here late, that kind of thing. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's a common concern. We did another study um, with um, healthcare providers who had gone through the training. Um, we did a, like a six-month follow-up, a series of focus groups with, with people from a particular system where we did this training, and we asked them about barriers um, to implementing uh, um, screening and and time constraints was certainly one um, that that was very prevalent. Uh, and I, the only you know I don't have a lot of ways to respond to that other than you know as healthcare providers, uh, we sometimes encounter clinical scenarios that are simply going to take more time. Um, for example, an example I often give to my residents is, you know, you might be seeing a patient that you think they're coming in for something quick, uh, like maybe a, a blood pressure check uh, and readjust their medications, and they tell you, oh, by the way, right now I'm short of breath and, and I've got pain in my chest. 
I mean, and I, and the, and, the, and I, I say to them, what are you going to do? And they say, well, I'm going to assess them for possible, you know, a possible uh, heart attack. Um, we're going to call rescue. We're going to get them to the hospital as soon as possible. And so I say, okay, and so when you do that, it's taking more time, right? Right. Okay. So I never hear doctors complain about that. Is taking more time. So then I, 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 I don't necessarily say that to the doc, to the resident, but uh, <laughs> what I, what I but what I will say is so occasionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll say occasionally um, you will have a patient who tells you that they are in a violent relationship and then they may fall apart at that moment and go into kind of a crisis mode and you will have to deal with it. Um, and, and But it's part of what you do as a doctor. Um, and, you know, but the vast majority of, of patients, even the vast majority of patients who indicate that they're in a violent relationship are not necessarily in need of extensive extra you know care to the point where um, you know the the whole day is going to be thoroughly disrupted by that and you know uh, and, and so we talk about that um, and that's why we talk about the importance of having that advocate on staff that you can immediately turn to if it looks like this is going to be longer than the time you may have as a physician um, you, that's why you have this advocate there to extend you and so that you can make that warm handoff and um, you know and go about seeing other patients and you can always circle back around to check on this patient you know later at a later point what is what's going to happen now with this information, what are you doing um, as an advocate for domestic violence and issues? What, what's going to happen next? Well, uh, a couple of things. One, of course, um, having inter do, you know doing interviews like this to kind of continue to get the word out um, is a part of you know what I. Um, you know what I am doing um, it, it, within the clinic I'm working in now. Um, we're we're making a transition to trauma-informed care. Um, so and we already have implemented healthcare can change from within, but but within this particular clinic, we're also finding a lot of other trauma that that we think we need to deal with as again as a healthcare issue. Um, and so uh, I see that as you know the next phase for me. Um, you mentioned the trauma, and of course, you're familiar with the ACEs mm -hmm. study, the adverse childhood mm -hmm. experiences that yeah. kind of almost precipitated the whole focus on trauma and mm -hmm. uh, trauma-informed care. We did I agree. have Dr. Vincent Felitti on the show, and he talked about his study. And one of the questions I asked him, I hope he's not going to get mad at me for this, but one of the questions I asked him is, why has it taken 30 years? For people to embrace this, I mean, I, I'm not a real touchy-feely kind of person. I'm not a big, you know, I tend to, I come from the Midwest, and you know, I believe in bootstraps and all that kind of stuff. And yet, I read part of that study, and I went, "Wow, of course, this is so clear." Um, I, I mean, how how is this even de debatable? You know, I mean, obviously, yeah. why, Dr. Felitti, did it take 30 years for us to embrace this? Or, um, you know, the judicial system is still not on board, but education seems to be there. And I said, you know, and what about health care? And he expressed some disappointment in how long it's taken health care um, to jump on board and, and understand the um, impact of childhood experiences, adverse childhood experiences. And I just kind of wanted to throw that out and see, it sounds to me like you're kind of building on that. Is, is that 
just my interpretation? Well, well, yeah, and you know, it does take a long time, and I guess that's that's one of the the frustrations that I've dealt with as well over the years, as well as the fact, as I mentioned to you, that just about the time you think you do have something in place, it, you know, it, the rock falls back to the bottom of the mountain and you have to push it back up all over again. Um, I've just kind of come to the conclusion that that's just kind of the way it is. It's, it's an unfortunate reality, uh, but uh, that's why uh, people like uh, Dr. Felitti and I and others who work in this area need to be continually persistent and uh, continually keeping the issue out in front of people uh, in our clinical work, in our scholarly work, for those of us who work in research and scholarly institutions, uh, in our advocacy work, um, uh, you know, in, in all that we do and in, in our policy making work so that we're continually kind of keeping this uh, these issues in front of key decision makers uh, so that, um, you know, we can continue to have those conversations and, and you know, make that progress. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think we're n- near where we should be with screening for domestic violence, but I will say this, that, that in that prevalence study that I published in 1992, we reported that 1.5% of women patients indicated that a doctor or a nurse had ever asked them about domestic violence. 1.5%. So that's pretty pathetic, uh, especially when you consider that the prevalence was 25% experiencing violence in the past year. Now, in 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 the Healthcare Can Change From Within project, uh, we found that 70, I think it was 72% of women reported in the experimental clinics uh, being asked about domestic violence and that I think it was something like 13 or 16 percent in the usual care clinics. Now 13 or 16 percent is not very good but it's still a lot better than 1.5 percent. That represents to me a certain kind of progress that has been made. We have a lot more work to do so I'm not saying, hey, we should celebrate and we should be happy with that. But I think we should at least see it as progress that, and, and, give, you know, and, and take some encouragement from that and you know, continue to push forward to you know, do more interventions that will result in 72 75%, 80% uh, screening rates and those kinds of things. Well, and I, I, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is to talk about the Healthcare Can Change from Within project, because we were focusing most of our, our conversation on this particular study, um, but that, that's actually from, well, it was first published in the Journal of Family Violence in 2014. So it's been around for a while, and it sounds like you have not let grass grow under your feet since then. So what is the Healthcare Can Change from Within project? Well, it, it's uh, I actually have described it um, to you. So it's it's it is a, a an approach to working with systems, clinic and and health systems, to uh, to change from the inside out to identify. Um, people within the system who can be trained to function as advocates, 
to train everybody within the system, the saturation training that I mentioned to you, um, the development of policies and procedures, the development of patient education materials, things like pamphlets and posters that can be placed on the walls and within exam rooms and in bathrooms and so on that talk about uh, risks for intimate partner violence, resources for it, or how to have healthy dialogue and healthy conflict resolution with one's partner and so on. And so, you know, that all becomes part of it too. Establishing uh, partnerships with uh, community resources such as the local advocacy program um, within those cities in which such programs exist. Um, so, you know, that in a sense, it's again changing the orientation of the healthcare system away from looking at domestic violence as something that's kind of, quote, out there, end quote, or a, quote, psychosocial problem, end quote, and instead viewing it as the health problem that it is. Is, though, the project a formal entity? Is this something that people can um, look up? And uh, how is this separate from just the studies that you've done? Well, they would look up the, the studies that we've done. We've published some other um, chapters and articles on the you know in, in much more depth on the concept of changing from within. Um, so yeah, that's how they would find that out. They could contact okay, me. <laughs> and, and how would they do that? Well, they could either call at. You want me to give them my number? If you want, if you want to, sure. Well, they could either. Well, I guess I guess I can be reached. Um, through the Medical College of Wisconsin, if they just Google my name, um, and uh, you know, and along with Medical College of Wisconsin, I think contact information would be, you know, available there. Yeah, I think that would be that would be very good. And of course, it's Dr. Kevin Hamburger. Do you use the L first? It's Dr. Yeah, L. yeah. Kevin so yeah, L, L. Kevin Hamburger. Yeah. Yeah. So we can't forget that that L. Um, so Although Google is pretty robust, it get, it get it gets to me the other way too. It does, it does. I mean, sometimes I'm astounded at how uh, comprehensive Google can be. Um, <laughs> but, okay, I read your study, and I know a little bit about uh, domestic violence, the history of it, but did I miss asking you something crucial, something that you really wanted to talk about? Um, I don't think so. I think that, that you covered it well, and you gave me a lot of latitude to kind of draw together a, a lot of different points, and so I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. Oh, good. <laughs> I want that in writing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you've got it recorded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to embroider it on a pillowcase, please. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much for the work you did. What's in the future as far as studies for you? Well, I'm current. Um, I've changed. Um, a, I've changed uh, direction just a little bit. As I mentioned to you earlier, I'm I'm now more focused on trauma-informed care and how do we um, implement that within a clinic setting. Um, and I'm currently also involved uh, with the trauma-informed care issue um, uh, with a uh, Robert Wood Johnson. Uh, foundation-sponsored project. It's called Milwaukee Prompt, and it has to do with uh, training um, uh, peer mentors in uh, who are veterans to work with other veterans on um, uh, opioid abuse and and uh, misuse issues. Wow, that's that's 
different from what we've been talking about, but boy, does that sound like a, a worthy endeavor as well. So yeah, well, it it it, 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 I'm sorry, it, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I say it still enc- it encompasses the trauma issue, so that that's where the the commonality comes in. Right, exactly, and you know, as as I learned, and I'm continuing to learn that whole trauma thing, you know, um, pretty pretty comprehensive for us human beings, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. Pretty pretty all encompassing, and you know, I I've often wondered because I you know you don't you don't live a long life without uh, encountering trauma, and I've often wondered we live in a culture that's so big on positive thinking and moving on and forget and forgive and let it go, and yet. We know that this stuff makes permanent changes physiologically, psychologically. It makes yep. permanent changes. How are we? I'm going to be interested in seeing the research in the future and the way that we go. Because how do you justify trauma-informed without trauma saturation and and waiting in it? Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely, absolutely. So that's and we and and, and and frankly. And to be honest with you, we we are waiting in it. You know, that's and I think that's why trauma informed care makes so much sense. Yeah, because if we can address it, then maybe we yeah. can do all of that, moving on and forgiving and forgetting and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know. That's that's my two cents worth. There you go. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor L. Kevin Hamburger, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with us about um, your study and what you're doing with the healthcare can change from within. I plan on taking this study to my healthcare provider and saying, look. Read this. This is something you need to know because awesome. I recently switched clinics uh, about two years ago, and never once have I been asked about domestic violence or intimate partner huh. violence. Never. Well, I, so, I hope that changes for you. I hope. So. Well, I hope so too. And you know, I, I think that it's okay for me to not be asked, but you know, maybe there was a time when I needed to be asked. Who knows? Well, and if it changes for you, it will change for hundreds and hundreds of other women. So that's the positive. Good. Thank you so much, Doctor, for being on the show. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And come back when you have your study book that you will talk about. Okay? Thank you very much. All right. Bye now. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways.